Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost here with another episode of The Art of Strategic Reaction. Today, we have on Mark Babbitt, who is the president of Word IQ. Mark is doing a lot of awesome work in business, helping businesses become or adapt to what we would call the social age. Um, and so I'm excited to have Mark on and talk about his experiences in, in running these companies, his experiences and what it means to be biz- in business during the social age and how that, uh, that shapes the way that businesses and, and leaders should or could be operating. So, uh, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kyle. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. So tell us, I mean, just give us a high level overview. Obviously, I, I give a quick introduction, but give us a, a high level overview of who Mark Babbitt is. Oh, so, so um, I am, I am an old white guy who who stumbled <laughs> onto social media um, well after my prime, but but saw in the almost a decade ago now the potential of social and digital media for changing our business, and and so I became an early adopter of the process and. And uh, and while that that may sound like I you know had a crystal ball and I saw something really cool happening, the reality is that I was such a strong introvert that I wasn't one of those guys who who loved going to conventions or or meetups or or anything like that. And and uh, social media, digital media allowed me to connect with amazing people over over the internet. And and I could kind of hide behind my keyboard until I got to know somebody a little bit, and then. And then I found I was far more comfortable extending that relationship to a cup of coffee or, or a, a lunch meeting or something, rather than having to go meet a hundred people at you know at one time. So, so it was really kind of a self-preservation thing. And I, I have to tell you, I didn't come into it, Kyle, naturally at all. Matter of fact, when we started our first talent community called U-Turn, uh, I it was my first time uh, being a CEO, and this was in 2010. And I'd always been the man behind the curtain. I'd always helped the CEOs build a great personal brand and done a lot of executive coaching, but I'd never been the guy out front. And and so my very young crew said, "You, we got to get you on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, and you have to be out in front of this thing. And I just went, oh, hell no. I'm not interested. That's not me. It's not who I want to be. And it took them about three months after, after we launched U-Turn to actually get out there and and I did one Twitter chat. I know the Twitter chats aren't as popular as they used to be a decade ago, but they still exist, but they don't they don't quite have the influence they used to. But I did one Twitter chat and met 200 people in one hour I would have never met otherwise. And I was absolutely hooked on on the promise of digital and social media. So uh, you said something early on that um, I'm assuming was intentional. And then there's another piece I want to get to after that. But the first thing was you referred to it as the process of social. Yeah, there, it is a process and, and it is a learned process. It's a learned experience. And, and I, I'm sure all of your listeners have experienced the side of uh, the dark side of social and digital media where, where it's just full of self promoters and spammers and sellers 
and and completely yeah. lacking in relationship builders and 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 using social for good and and uh, mentoring others and bringing others up along with you and and the first phase of social and digital media was leaned very much toward that dark side and it was a process to go through we we all had to live through it where where you know what kind of how do we want to be known what kind of person do we want to be and and so it it did, it did become a process and a very painful process for many along the way. Yeah. Well, I, I think the process piece stood out to me because I think uh, social media sometimes is talked about like this amorphous thing um, versus being talked about something that should be very intentional and should have a process to it. And so social media isn't just this thing. It actually is the social piece, social almost as in a verb versus just this entity or thing that's out there. So the the comment about it being a process stood out to me, especially if you're using it uh, for the purpose of business or leadership or personal brand, really understanding the process of social media, not just the platform of social media. Well, that you're, you're spot on, Kyle, especially especially those who might have fallen into some of those more uh, the, those categories that have more negative connotations. Um, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with social selling or digital selling used wisely there there's there's nothing wrong with personal branding matter of fact it's kind of crucial we have to we have to demonstrate social proof of our of our capabilities and our passions and and our associations and our uh, partnerships right all of those are so important but if we don't go about it the right way and if we don't know what we stand for and frankly what we won't stand for before we jump into all that and and just start blasting stuff out there, it, it can get a little messy and it gets a little crazy and we can alienate the very customers we want to impress. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and you know, I talk about strategy a lot and it just goes back to the idea that everything you do should be strategic. You have, should have some intention behind it, some goals behind it. You should be uh, tracking, you know, what things are working, what things aren't working so that you can constantly improve on them. Well, you know, it's still, when you get right down to it, Kyle, it's still marketing, right? And and what yeah. entrepreneur would consider themselves in a wise place if they invested a whole bunch of time or money in marketing and then didn't measure the results? And and especially in that phase one of digital and social media, the social age as we call it, that did not happen. It was free. You could Twitter for free. You could get on Facebook for free. You could do most everything, including post jobs for free. It was, you know, the blogging sites, a lot of blogging sites were free or almost free. And people didn't understand that that there was still an opportunity cost involved. And there, and there was certainly, if we didn't do it well, there was a personal branding cost involved. And and, you know, a long time ago, Bullfrog did this amazing study that showed that 73% of customers would change their allegiance to that brand simply based on the online presence of the CEO. Three out of four, if the CEO had a slip up, if the CEO was kind of a spammer or a self-promoter, they'd go they'd go buy from somebody else. And, and we didn't realize the impact, the influence that that social and digital media had at one time, but boy, we sure do now. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's definitely a whole new game in terms of, gosh, you know, every time I open social media, you see some story about, uh, to your point, a slip up, a mistake, uh, you know, a misstep, uh, 
wrong phrasing um, and these leaders, you know, getting lambasted for those things um, for, for right or wrong. Uh, it definitely has put a spotlight on that and people need to, you know, be much more cautious and aware and intentional about how they're using those platforms now than, than in the past. Now you said something else, you said something else that I wanted to just touch on before I, before I get lost on it. So you mentioned, uh, having to, getting 200 connections. So being able to connect to 200 people in, you know, a, a Twitter chat. Um, <clears throat> and I just think that number stood out to me because so many people are reaching out and they're saying, I only got 200 views. I only got a hundred of this. I only got, you know, 75 likes. I only got, but when you think about the actual numbers, when you think about 200 people that you were able to connect with, and you're able to do it quickly, efficiently. You were able to do it in a way that you couldn't have done before. You were able to do it in a way that was low cost versus having to be on a stage, having to knock on 200 doors. When you actually start to put that into perspective of what those 200 people really mean, it takes on a whole new meaning versus comparing those 200 to these viral things that have you know millions and saying, well, I'm not at millions. So I, I think that the number is important. Sometimes we get lost in these big numbers and these viral ideas and we lose that 200 people is big. Well, here's what's interesting about that, Kyle, is when I finally acquiesced and, and, and told my millennial crew that I would jump on, on social media with my personal brand, I did it with one condition. And that was that we didn't give a rat's butt about likes or shares or, or um, followers that our sole metric would be potential relationships built and, and not just relationships built, but quality relationships built. And so I set a ground rule and the ground rule was, was really simple and it's actually become a, a big part of my life rules now. And, and the ground rule was no divas, no drama queens, no trolls, no, no takers, no fakers, no assholes. And, and we, okay. and we just wouldn't do business with them. We just wouldn't, um, it, it just, the, the return on investment with, with people that can be labeled in one of those six categories, we learned very early was absolutely not worth the process. And, and so we, we set out to deliberately build relationships with high quality people doing high quality work, using social for good, um, mentoring others, uh, teaching others giving of themselves. Uh, you know, Adam Grant came up with that amazing book almost a decade ago now, uh, 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 Takers and Givers. And, and, uh, and we, we, we actually interviewed Adam for, uh, before our book came out um, in 2014. And we said, we want to take your, your givers, matchers, takers process to the next level. And we want to establish this this category called relentless givers. And because those are the people that we found out we were doing business with most people who maybe they didn't see it, you know, a buck in it. Maybe they didn't see a, a big, a big strategic partnership in it, but, but they saw a quality human to human relationship. And, and that those are the people we wanted to hang out with on online and, and in person. And, and those relationships for us, have turned into many, many, many wonderful strategic partnerships, but it started with a focus on quality people, not numbers. Yeah. 
Well, and there's a there's an interesting dynamic to that in terms of a lot of times social media is always focused on attracting or finding the right people. And there's an element of when you're very intentional about it and you have that kind of focus that you're not just finding the right people, you're actually weeding out the wrong people. You're being intentional about the people that you're not targeting. So rather than saying, well, I need a million views, I need a million people to attach to this, you're saying, you know what? I only need a hundred, but I need them to be the right people. And I'm going to connect with them on a level that's deeper. And so anybody who doesn't fit in this space, who doesn't resonate with what I'm doing, I just need to not, you know, waste energy and money and resources trying to attract that audience when there are uh, is a small network out there that is just going to love what I do and gravitate toward it and connect with it. And that's going to be way more meaningful. Well, Kyle, you just gave the best possible advice we can give to, to entrepreneurs and leaders. And here's the best part about that advice. It's never too late to refocus your digital and social presence. And, and even if you have fallen into some of those dark side categories, it I, we've seen it over and over again. We, we advise a ton of companies um, big companies, Fortune 100 companies, on on their corporate presence and their and their social intelligence and and their workplace intelligence, and and it's funny how many of them come from a branding perspective where they know it's not ideal. They know they know they're not hiring the right people because they don't have the right employer brand. They don't have great reviews on Glassdoor. They don't they don't have a wonderful reputation for treating their employers or their customers well. Perhaps they're stuck in their industrial age modalities, and we help them. and 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 we tell them all the time, it's never too late to do the right thing. And let's start right now. Let's get to work. and And it's amazing how quickly it catches on. It becomes part of the company culture. Yeah, I love that. So I'm curious, uh, as we're talking here, and you're talking about th- this level of connection. Um, so I built a model a while ago uh, for a client who was trying to make this strategic shift um, to becoming a trusted advisor. So they're this very large company that um, that a lot of farmers and ranchers had to turn to for product. Um, and they felt like they were just being very viewed as this commodity. They felt like farmers and ranchers had some resentment toward them because they had to turn to this organization for some of the product. Um, and they said, look, we want to shift our model to become this trusted advisor to these groups. We don't just want to distribute products. We want them to actually see us as a true resource of insight and information. And so we went through and we did a bunch of research and we found out these kind of three areas that were really key to becoming a trusted advisor, to being perceived and seen as a trusted advisor. And we built this model around it. Um, And the first piece was uh, creating mutual small wins. And and as as we're talking about these social dynamics, I was wondering about what does creating mutual small wins look like in the social space? Well, it, it, that's a wonderful question, and I love the way you framed it. It, it really does start with, with two sets of relentless givers and, 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 and propping each other up and getting to the point where and the, you use the key word trust. I mean, really, that's when we're online, when we're working hard to build our brand, we're for you know you can forget about the word brand substitute the word trust you're you're developing trust with a with your current customers with potential customers with strategic partners with your employees that that's the keyword and and without that 
it becomes impossible to to celebrate those mutual wins. And we we refer to that process as building mutually beneficial relationships. And but it, but it's you know it's it is that it is that um, diverse set of winning that helps us. And and so how it looks is quite simple. I'm going to help you out this time, knowing that at some point, since we're both in the same space. I'm going to need a little help. I'm going to need more bandwidth. I'm going to need a, a, a trusted advisor of my own to bring into a project. Uh, I'm, I'm going to need an, a, an area of expertise that I don't have to close this deal, but you do. And they're going to remember that time you bent over backwards to support them, and they're going to come. They're going to come running. And and that's what relentless givers have. If you if you online and in person, it can't just be this persona online. Ha- you you have to follow through. You have to you have to live your word. But once you get that reputation and, and you start helping celebrate those mutual wins, then then when you when you send up the the flag and say, "Hey, I need some help," people people li- line up to volunteer. Where if you've been associating with with contract seekers, with the spammers, with the self promoters, when you ask for help from them, they're going to spin it and say, "Okay, well, what's in it for me?" Well, that's the definition of a taker. And, and that's not the kind of relationships we want to build in. And it's not the kind of relationships that help grow our company. So if I'm, if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking to myself, man, I haven't been taking this approach. I, I don't feel like I've been this giver. I feel like I have had this taker mentality. If I'm that entrepreneur and I want to make a shift, I want to become this relentless giver. How do I decide? How do I identify? How do I determine what that thing is? that I can give that's going to be meaningful to my audience. That's going to be meaningful to my potential market. How do I do that? How do I make that shift and figure out what that step looks like? So, so there's actually three steps that we recommend all the time. One, start mentoring somebody less experienced than you could be somebody younger than you could also be a senior citizen starting their career over, but get deeply and personally involved with the, with the, professional and personal growth of an individual. That's because that sets your mind up. I mean, maybe you're not going to get a big contract out of that. Although we've certainly done that. And then former interns, um, former mentees, uh, former apprentices of ours have come back and go, Hey, I'm working for, for Goldman Sachs now. And we'd love to bring you in to talk about culture. I mean, it does eventually pay off, but is it a quick, you know, is it a quick um, return on investment? No, but it, more important than that, it sets you personally up as as a mentor. And and once you once you take on that mentor first mindset, your view of the business world and, and in many cases your personal world changes because now you are giving and you're giving pretty consistently. So that that's number one. Number two, you have to seek out the people who are already doing this and and. If you've been on the dark side for a little bit, you may have to reach out and say, "Look, I got off to a, a terrible start. Perhaps our relationship didn't um, didn't pan out. I know we had that opportunity to work together, and I don't feel like I I, I addressed that very well. I, I don't think our company handled it very well, and and I'm here to say that I'm I, I'm ready. And and then once you say that, boy, your actions got to back it up. And and it's really simple. People ask me all the time, "Well, how do I how do I take?" take back a bad experience. And I said, you look them right in the eye and you say, how can I help? What are you working on right now that I can help with? And we don't even have to talk about money. How can I help you? And, and so that that's key. And then lastly, 
set your company up for uh, like you took on being a mentor first, set your company up in the same position, start doing pro bono work, look inside your, your local community or, or a national issue and, and get your whole company involved. And, and, uh, and I know that it sounds like a lot of work, but it doesn't have to be right. If you, if you talk your entire company to go work at a kitchen this Sunday on Easter Sunday, and then you get on social media and you and you share those pictures. You provide social proof of ten or twelve of your companies serving people less fortunate than yourselves on Easter Sunday. People will look at your company different, and and all it takes is a couple giving Facebook posts. Not like, hey, look how great we are. We're in the soup kitchen on Sunday. Not like that. It's like, you know, more like we had the most fun we've had together as a company in a long time serving people downtown this weekend. We hope to we hope to make this a regular event. Next time we hope you'll join us, right? That kind of thing. So it's not self-promoting. It's it's not you grandstanding. It's you just a little providing a little social proof that that not just you but your entire company is in this giving mode and it and it becomes contagious, Kyle. It really does. I love it. I love it. I I also think um a way to do that that um is meaningful and helps mitigate the risk that you come across as being too self-promotional is whatever that giving looks like expressing gratitude that you had the opportunity to do that giving. So I think, I think gratitude attached to giving um, helps mitigate for people seeing it as self-promotional because you're acknowledging what you're getting from that experience as well in the experience. Well, well said, Kyle. And I'll tell you a big part of that, especially the social proof angle, is not just what you just said, which is so important. But, but don't be afraid when you've had this experience. Don't be afraid to ask the nonprofit that you helped, the community that you helped, the city that you helped. Don't be afraid to ask for a one paragraph testimonial. And then rather than, than, than you saying how important this work was, how, how happy you were to contribute. Now you have the words of that nonprofit director or, or a family that was directly impacted by your work. And they're talking about you. And we refer to that as a testimonial economy. And, and boy, the more testimonials you have, the better your economy, period. So you got it. Don't be afraid of asking for people to say a kind word or two after you've, after you've done a little, a little relentless giving. That's awesome. One of the things that I firmly believe is that it's impossible to overgive and not get the same or greater value in return. Um, and so when you're talking about the mentorship piece, starting with mentoring someone, being a mentor, it reminded me of my mentor. Um, and one of the things he said really stuck out to me. So he had never proactively taken a big mentorship role. And when he did, one of the comments he made is he said, this has been, this is him, I'm quoting him. He said, this has been one of the greatest learning experiences of my life because by mentoring you, I've had to put into words so many of the thoughts and ideas and concepts that have become natural to me. And so his point was that through his mentorship, he actually got more clear and understood better how he was operating and why than if he wasn't being asked to mentor because without being asked to mentor, he just went and did it. He didn't have to actually 
respond to why he was doing things. And yet when he was mentoring me, I was always asking, why, why did you say this? Why did you ask this? Why did you do that? Which forced him to actually think more deeply about those things. Um, and so I think this whole idea of being a relentless giver isn't just about attracting an audience, making the audience feel like you're connected, but is a true investment in your own potential, a true investment in your own future, because there's this, this immediate and big return to any of those relentless giving activities. Well, it's so true. And I, and here's what we hear all the time, especially from, you know, I, I tend to, I tend to use the phrase old white guys a lot because let's face it, a lot of, a lot of, um, older white males have been taught to lead in a certain way. And, and we're, you know, we're moving away from that, right? As we, as we get further, I mean, we're a decade into the social age now. And so a lot of companies have abandoned their industrial age leadership principles, but some absolutely have not. And, and uh, some leaders, some major CEOs still, still are suffering from boomer male syndrome, BMS, we call it. And, and, it, <laughs> like and it's, and it's really hard for those people to say, wait a minute, I, I have a third quarter report coming up. I have two holes in my company right now that, that, that I have to fill. I have international travel and press interviews to accomplish. When am I going to have time to mentor? And, and our answer to them is quite simple. When, when don't you have time? What do you want your, you want your legacy to be that third quarter report or you want your legacy to be the people that, that you helped, helped curate that you help bring into the into the corporate world that you help find their passion even if it wasn't with your company but now they're off doing amazing work for somebody else and you were instrumental in in the decision making that went into that process i mean that's that's what we live for it isn't it, it sure isn't uh, filling those those holes or 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 conducting the perfect interview on financial news it's 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 what you're doing to help others that you'll be remembered for in and again, it becomes contagious, and and it and it it kind of sets the tone because the people that you've now mentored, like my guess is Kyle, because you had such a strong mentor, that you are far more prone to mentoring somebody else than you would be otherwise. And and that's uh, it, like I said, it just gets contagious, and and pretty soon the whole world around you changes just because you took that mindset. That's great. And you think about the the expounding effect of that. So if you just have one person who's mentoring versus to your point, how it becomes contagious and spreads and you think about an entire organization who has a culture of mentorship and how powerful that culture is going to be and that the results that are going to come from that culture versus your point of kind of a tactical way of thinking where it's just, you know, I've got these gaps, I've got these holes, I've got to do these things. Um, and what that's going to actually breed versus the mentorship and what that culture and that could actually breed by having more and more people um, participating in those activities. It's huge. Well, it is huge. And it's so huge. Um, my, my co-author, Chris Edmonds, and I have a new book coming out next year. And, and, and we talk about culture co cornerstones and, and building a good culture for your business based on leadership principles that, that have proven since we transitioned into the social age to be effective. And, and highly effective, and 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 one of the four culture cornerstones is a mentor-first mindset. And and you can talk about how great your company culture is. You can talk about how great your employer brand is. But in a job interview, if a really 
highly talented college graduate or or somebody from a, a competitor comes over and the first question they ask is who would be my mentor in this company and you don't have an answer to that you are not going to hire that top talent because that's what people are looking for now they know that that this mentor first mindset is critical to their personal and professional growth and and it's become just as important as health benefits and time off and and so it has become such an such an important part of an engaging co- company culture that if you're not offering that you're in a little bit of trouble right now yeah yeah that's big and it's it's one of those soft things that's hard to capture without somebody actually calling it out like you just did where it you know you can get so focused on the other things that um and not call out those opportunities i know in our hiring practices that's been something that people ask about it's something that people resonate with when we tell them what that can look like within our organization um and to your point a lot of times it's way bigger than the benefits package. It's okay. That means a lot to me that I'm going to get to work with this person, that I'm going to get to um, have this mentorship, that I'm going to get to have this guidance from this, this, you know, person who's an expert in the space and has had, has more experience doing it. Those are big things. Well, they are big things. And and this is where, you know, you use the word soft and we used to refer to these in, in so many companies and, and uh, HR practitioners, HR tech companies still focus on, you know, quote, I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them, Kyle, but I'm doing air quotes, soft <laughs> skills. And, and so we're, we're actually uh, intentionally redefining soft skills into the phrase workplace intelligence, because we want people to think, and by the way, it might sound a little complicated. It's really not. What emotional intelligence is to a leader or to an employee, workplace intelligence is, is, is to a collection of leaders or a collection of employees, a team, a division, um, a department. And, and that collective workplace intelligence, when we add mentorship to that, data is showing that we're eight times more likely to be successful as a team, a department, a division than we would be otherwise. 800% improvement, if nothing else, because we, we severely limit the attrition. When people have a mentor, they feel like they belong there. They couldn't imagine going anywhere else. It would, it, they couldn't imagine that conversation where they have to disappoint their mentor to leave for a lateral move. I mean, if it's a big move, it's a, you're going to start your own company. If you're going to take your first directorship or executive position, of course. But, but it would kill you that you have such a, a strong sense of belonging, especially with that mentor, that team of mentors, that it would kill you to go somewhere else. And and it's just it's just amazing the difference that this mentor first mindset has on every single business result you can think of from productivity to profits to retention it's just it's just an amazing phenomenon yeah it makes total sense i think about so many organizations that are focused on knowledge management and retaining institutional knowledge uh, at this stage and almost all of them are going toward tech solutions that say, well, here's where we're going to house it. Here's how we're going to be able to access it. Here's what the taxonomy of folders looks like. Here's you know how we need to be tagging and connecting the information. And it's all around getting information into some system. And yet I rarely hear the topic come up of the role that mentorship actually plays in continuing institutional knowledge, in preserving institutional knowledge, in sharing it, in getting the right solutions to the right people at the right time. And so you're calling out something that is is such a big factor, but so often overlooked in terms of knowledge within the organization, knowledge per 
per, per knowledge in perpetuity, uh, institutional knowledge, all of these things that aren't systems based, that are a uh, culture, that are getting people connected to each other. It goes right back to the whole social element that, uh, that obviously we started this conversation with. Right. Well, and I'll tell you, Kyle, here, um, I'm, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'll contradict you just a little bit, which I hate to do. It's your show. Um, but I'll, <laughs> but I'll tell you that the, the technology based aspect of this got lumped into this category called employee engagement. And about 30 years ago, this, this became a big deal because we knew it had a direct impact on retention, productivity, innovation, right? It kind of became this buzzword three decades ago. And, and, and so much of a buzzword that Gallup started doing an annual poll on it. And, and here's what's funny about employee engagement, which in reality is nothing more than a management, I can't talk, management manipulation tool designed to, I mean, you're sitting at your desk, you're a manager Without a mentor first mindset, you just promoted somebody else other than Becky and in, in into a you know a decent position would have been a big move for her. And now you get a cue, your employee engagement software technology tells you, hey, it's Becky's 10-year anniversary today. Go say congratulations. And now you're gonna somehow walk over and and based on a prompt from a technology device, not taking any context into consideration at all, and say, hey. Great job, ten years. Well, that I mean, it's just so manipulative. It's 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 the opposite of a human to human interaction. It's it's a forced conversation, and it actually hurts us rather than helps us. And and just to put this in perspective, Kyle, you probably already know this. Thirty years we've been tracking this, and and we've spent literally billions of dollars on this on this ridiculous phrase called employee engagement, and engagement is actually down. After 30 years and billions of dollars, we have worse engagement in corporate America now than we did 30 years ago. And it just, it's insane. That's incredible. I, you know, I've never heard it positioned in terms of, you know, a manipulative uh, practice or tool or resource. I can definitely see that. It actually makes me think about, um, I've been doing some research and writing some pieces about uh, how technology is is really detrimental to our own produ productivity. And it, it goes to something that you mentioned. There's this part of our brain that when we, when we put something into a piece of technology, we, we give it an input, we put a calendar invite, we download an app, that it shuts off a part of our brain that says, I've now given the ability to kind of manage this to something else. So I don't need to have my brain tapped in and tuned into it because it's going to notify me. It's going to tell me. So I can just let that go and start thinking about something else. Um, and then the problem is that when those alerts, those notifications do come up, we're not primed. We're not ready to do anything with them. So then we're scrambling. We've got an alert that we hadn't been thinking about at all. Now we have five minutes to do something with it. And we're scrambling to try to, to your point, jump up out of our desk and go tell somebody congratulations on 10 years without it actually being a part of our, our cognitive processes and our emotional processes. And so there is this element of over-reliance on technology and how it actually makes us less productive because the things we're doing may be very efficient, but they neglect a big part of what makes them effective to exactly what you're saying. What's the difference between me getting a notification and having 30 seconds to think about what I'm going to say to someone as I walk over to their desk to congratulate them for 10 years 
versus knowing my people and knowing that that 10 year you know, anniversary is coming up and knowing what that person's actually going to like, appreciate, want in terms of that recognition. Um, and so I, I think it just articulates that process, that thinking that I've been doing research on and some writing on already. Right. Well, here, Kyle, I'll, 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 I'll give away a trade secret um, for you and your listeners. I love it. Have your employees fill out a recognition profile. And it's just, it's just a, such an easy form. It can be a Google form or, or even paper if you don't want to go digital, but but learn enough about your people to know, and, and this gets right back to what you just said, how they want to be recognized. Some people, just say your top salesman, they might appreciate a big a big party, a salesman of the quarter, salesman of the year, have a big celebration, right? Make a, give me give me a little crystal plaque or award, um, uh, you know, two weeks from now on a Friday, right? They might they might really appreciate that that go all out, make a big deal out of this thing where other people would, that would embarrass the crap out of them. And they want nothing to do with that. They just, look, I, I love my job. I love my company. I, I love my mentors. I love my boss, but I, I don't want, I just want to do my job. And, and so these recognition profiles actually say, you know, if, if I was going to give you a gift card, do you want it to be from Starbucks or Chick-fil-A? Right. I mean, it goes to that level. So people are rewarded and recognized for the work that they do in the in the way that that matters most to them. And just those little things, you know, the, the next time somebody goes above and beyond or or just does study enough work to keep the lights on in, a, in, a, in an appreciable way. Boom. They, they come into work tomorrow and there's a Starbucks card sitting on their desk with a with a handwritten thank you note. My God, that that goes so far and is so much more organic and appreciated than a than a than an employee engagement software so telling you it's Becky's 10 year anniversary go say hi no doubt i mean i have personal experience where i've made those mistakes where i make an assumption about what someone's going to want or appreciate and I invest these high amounts of time and energy into it, uh, only to find out that it wasn't something that actually resonated with them. It didn't actually make a deposit, you know, in their trust account, so to speak. Um, and, and find out that some employees literally just saying, Hey, I heard about this work that you did. It was awesome. Great job is the biggest thing that they could get. Um, where I've spent, you know, hours trying to devise something else or, you know, hundreds of dollars trying to come up with some incentive or reward. And yet all I needed to do was just give them a sincere thank you for the work that you've done. Well, good for you for learning that lesson early in your life, Kyle. I'll, I'll tell you one more thing, if you don't mind me adding on to this, you don't have to wait till Go the job it. is done, right? I mean, if you're a leader and, and we, we work with a, a major health company, health insurance company out of Seattle, and, and the leader was, was, um, charismatic and decisive and innovative, but his people hadn't gotten to know him yet. They didn't, they just saw this kind of um, old school, hard nosed guy who came in and laid off 600 people out of 3,600 people almost as soon as he got there. And, and it was just really hard to build those relationships. So we encouraged him to perform what we call random acts of leadership. And, and it's really simple. You get your, you know, you're a leader. You're probably going home after everybody else does. You look and see one of your engineers is is just now leaving the parking lot the same time you are. It's quite late in the evening. The next day, just walk up to that engineer and go, "Hey, William, I saw I saw you were working late last night. What are you working on? How can I help you? Why why 
Why couldn't you get home to your family at a decent hour last night? You know, tell me how I can help. And, and, and he started doing that. And people looked at him like, are you crazy? Did I do something wrong? Why are you, why you're talking to me? Your head's not down in your phone. And, and people weren't ready for that caring one-on-one mutually beneficial conversation to the point it actually startled them a little bit until his leadership brand started to change. I mean, people would go around and go, Mr. Gregory just walked up to me and actually started a conversation and asked how we could help. Can you believe he did that? And, and again, it became contagious. And, and so don't wait until a job is done. Don't wait until something amazing happens. Honor the people that are doing amazing work right now. And also honor the people that are, that are doing the, maybe the non-dynamic work that just keeps the lights on, keeps the customers happy, keeps fellow employees happy. Honor that kind of work as much as you do the, the, the number one salesman or closing the big contractor or meeting the big product deadline. Uh, recognition rewards are a constant. And, and, and if you build a mentor first mindset, you really get to know your people and how they like to be recognized. It will transform your company culture. Well, and that's, that's, I mean, that's a life lesson, right? That's not just employees. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, my wife and I try to practice this with our children in terms of looking at every situation and asking what was the skill or the talent or the aptitude that they demonstrated in this. So even in the most frustrating circumstances, if we're looking for it, we can see the skill or the aptitude that actually is a benefit. It's just maybe not being applied in the right circumstance or it's not being applied um, in a way that's meaningful at that time. But by looking for those things and identifying them, we're then able to actually help bring those things out and strengthen them under the right circumstances. So it applies to your people, to your point, you know, don't just wait until the job is done. I love that. I love that you called that out and you spoke to that. Um, And recognizing no matter what role they're playing or where they're headed in the organization, the talent and skill that you can try to bring out in them and really focusing in on those things versus this mindset that's always looking for the mistake, always looking for uh, you know the gap to try to fill. Um, and there's a lot of meaning to identifying those strengths. I think that that is what really draws people in and gets them engaged and excited. Um, and it's a life lesson that applies not just to employees and to coworkers, but to, you know, other relationships in your life. Well, two things real quick. And I, I, and I, I don't want to hog your time, Kyle, but you said two things that are really important. One, I'll tell you, I, I, I have five kids from 31 to 12 and, and I have a, a, a granddaughter. She's the oldest of five grandkids. That's nine. So almost 10. So so uh, kids and family are a big part of my life. Uh, and in addition to that, I've coached baseball. This is my 33rd straight year coaching baseball. And, Impressive. And so, and so I say all the time, everything I learned about leadership and culture, I learned from raising kids and grandkids and, and coaching baseball. And, and so I'm really glad to hear you say that, that you, you're applying some of these things you're learning to your family because where else is it more important to be a mentor than within with your own children and, or, or, or the children that you're impacting as an adult. And, and so I'm really glad to hear you say that. Second thing I'll, I'll add really quick is when you transition from the manager mindset, which is primarily focused on compliance and conformity and has been since the industrial age was brand new, we were all just supposed to do our jobs and do it right and do it well 
don't think, don't innovate, right? That's, I mean, back when, when we were just, uh, uh, most of us were leaving the farms to become assembly workers. That was the mindset, right? And it's carried over for so long that, that, that it got to the point where a manager's really only job was and how they were measured was compliance and conformity. Well, you, you go from that mindset to the mentor first mindset. And now instead of looking at compliance and conformity, now you're looking at two very different things. You're looking at potential and performance. And it's your job as a mentor to help them reach the potential. So they perform in, in, in an amazing manner. And, and so it just completely changes how you lead your company, how you build your com- your culture. When you, when you go from, look, I don't really care how you get the work done. It's my job to give you the resources you need to, to get it done. And, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm going to state the challenge to you. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you all the resources you need to ch- to take on this challenge. And I'm going to get the hell out of the way. And I'm going to trust you. You tell me when you need me, but I'm going to trust you to go get this done. And that sense of empowerment, that sense of, that sense of autonomy is so different than what people are used to in the workplace where we do f- focus way too much on compliance and conformity and and don't value collaboration and cooperation it just it just changes the entire mindset of the company like wow she really trusts me i i this is my project i'm going to own this and and the accountability just goes way up not just the productivity not just the innovation but the accountability goes way up I love that you spoke to potential as part of that. And I, I couldn't agree more in terms of the distinction between this compliance-driven mindset of management versus this potential-driven mindset of development. One of the things that I tell my people all the time, you know, even if I'm doing, uh, if, I, if I'm reprimanding an employee, one of the things I tell them is, if I didn't believe in your potential, I wouldn't be having this conversation. So the conversation isn't about me, you know, policing your behavior or, you know, getting a gotcha because you did some mistake. This conversation is taking place because I believe so much that you have this potential. And uh, and so the conversation is really about your potential, not me policing a behavior. If I didn't think you had the potential, then I wouldn't be, you know, having the conversation. Well, and that conversation is an important one to have because... People, especially if they're working for somebody afflicted with BMS, boomer male syndrome, they're not used to having that conversation at all. They're, they're, they're told the, the problem, they're told how that leader sees the solution going, and they're given a deadline on which to get it done, right? And they're not used to having that conversation, Kyle, as you probably experienced. And it's, it's earth-shattering. It's a little scary. It's a little intimidating at first. And frankly, it's not for everybody. And, you know, we talked before about how people, some people are introverts and don't want that big recognition platform. Well, some people like the structure and security of, no, you know what? I really just want to, I just want to do my job. And I, and I don't want to get out in front of this. And I, I don't want to have to think. And, and so part of a leader's job is to understand the level of potential of each of their employees and don't, don't treat them the same. You, you might have a 20 year employee you don't even realize it yet, but 20 years ago, he was a great hire. But for this culture at this time where we want those, those accountable, autonomous, innovative thinkers, maybe he's not a good hire right now. And, and in that case, when you realize you don't have that, that contributor isn't, isn't in the perfect model of today's standard, let attrition be your best friend and go find somebody who wants to innovate, who wants to own that project, who wants to, to be uh, an entrepreneur or 
or or or maybe maybe you even know that person she's going to go start her own company in three years but for the next three years i'm going to be the best mentor i can be and she's going to become a great strategic partner three to five years from now but for now i got her and she's going to help my company better so i'm going to make her be better and it's just a whole different attitude well mark you are uh you are clearly a wealth of knowledge um i think you've got a ton to offer people that are looking at leadership, asking themselves the question, how do I become a better leader? How do I uh, lead my organization in this social sphere? Uh, what comes next for you? What are you working on that people can be keeping a pulse on, be connecting with you on? Well, we're, we're still, we're still uh, working hard on, on helping college students through an organization called U-Turn ascend into the workplace. Uh, we talk a lot about personal branding and social proof and and, 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 you know, hitting the ground running post-graduation uh, far more than, than they would if they just um, believe the big lie that says a uh, college degree somehow makes you infinitely employable. Um, so we're doing a lot of work in that space. Um, WorkIQ.com is, is where we talk a lot about workplace intelligence, and we help leaders build a, a, not only a great personal leadership brand, um, but, but also a great company culture. Uh, and uh, my uh, my good friend and business partner uh, Chris Edmonds and I are working on a new book that we discussed earlier um, that's coming out next year called Culture Cornerstones that is I hope is uh, is going to do what you said earlier Kyle and that is it kind of forces us to put into words the practices that we've been using to run our businesses and to help other businesses grow and thrive and 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 we're being forced to put that into words so that'll come out next year. That's fantastic. I will uh, look forward to receiving my copy when you guys have it out. Uh, where can people connect with you? Where can they follow you? Where can they see some of the work that you're doing? Well, I encourage everybody to go to workiq.com. That's W-O-R-Q-I-Q.com. And you can always reach me via email. I, 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 still, uh, I still answer all my own email and answer my own cell phone. And, uh, and I encourage everybody just, uh, I love talking about this stuff and I, and I love building those mutually beneficial relationships myself. So, so, um, reach me on email at mark.babbitt, B-A-B-B-I-T-T at workiq.com. Fantastic. Uh, so we will include some links to workiq.com and information for people that want to connect with you. Mark, I just want to say thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for uh, some tremendous insights that are applicable both to leadership, business, and to personal life. Really appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure to be here. Thanks, Kyle. All right, folks. Thanks for listening in to another episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction with Mark Babbitt today. And uh, keep tuned for the next episode that comes out.